The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. I remember a day in February 2020, back before COVID, only just before COVID, when I actually went overseas for the last time. And I was in Sydney in a very high-rise building and watching this wall of smoke coming in from the bush to envelop Sydney. And it was the most extraordinary experience, like some sort of weird dystopian movie. Uh, I didn't quite expect Australian zombies to start crashing around Sydney, but it felt like the end of the world. And as it turned out, it wasn't so much the smoke. Um, Just a few weeks later, we had the COVID disaster. But it made me think a lot more about climate change, in part because the big four banks in Australia are also our big four banks. And in the last week or so, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand has released its climate change report, a big strategy document on what it thinks it will do. Now, this surprises a few people, asking the question, what on earth is the central bank, who looks after monetary policy and financial policy, doing, spending so much time talking about climate change? They're doing too much with their um, their woke budget, <laughs> is the complaint that some people have. But actually, um, having thought about those big four Australian banks that day in Australia, and what's coming in New Zealand as our climate warms up, I can see it's really important. And this week's episode is a bit of a deep dive into what climate change means for the most important thing for New Zealanders, the house price. (laughs) I'm being a bit facetious, but actually it dominates so much about not just our economy, but our society. Um, At the moment, one of the biggest crises we have, apart from COVID, is affordable housing. That's all about house prices and how much people have borrowed to pump up those house prices. That's all fine. You think, well, what's that got to do with the climate? Surely um, the weather doesn't change interest rates or house price values or whether or not you can get insurance for a house until it does. This week's episode is about how those climate change factors, such as increased number of storms, increased intensity of storms, increased floods, bushfires and the likes, how will those affect the value of houses, where we can live, who's going to pay for adapting to climate, and What's going to happen next? What are the triggers that suddenly mean you can't get insured? Or there's a note on your land information memorandum, which means that you find it difficult to sell your house. Or after a storm, you can't go to the beach anymore and your million-dollar view turns into a $200,000 view. Who gets to pay for that? These are all the questions that our financial regulators, our politicians, and eventually the mortgage brokers and the bankers and the homeowners and the home sellers will have to grapple with as well. So this week we talked to Adrian Orr, the Reserve Bank Governor, who thinks a lot about climate change, in part because um, he's seen the effects of it as the head of the New Zealand Superannuation Fund. It's been one of the more progressive pension funds, sovereign wealth funds in the world, and getting out of fossil fuel uh, companies and putting money into renewable energy. Uh, He helped lead that process at the New Zealand Super Fund. But also regulators of banks and insurers around the world are really focused on climate change and what it means for the value of the lending, the insurance contracts that these banks and insurers have. Because when things go wrong, a bank or an insurer can be a dangerous thing. And if your economy is quite concentrated on a few banks or a few insurers or a few places to live where one storm or one fire could suddenly endanger your financial system, then you really need to know about how climate change is going to affect you. So I asked, firstly, Adrian Orr about 
what it means for monetary policy. We don't often think about that. We sort of understand that climate change might affect the value of houses and insurance contracts and loans. But what about monetary policy? Because we're going through this weird time during COVID, after COVID, when energy prices have gone nuts. So we've got the oil price at its highest point in almost a decade. Gas prices across Europe and China have gone utterly ballistic in the last couple of months. The coal price is at a record high, $200 a tonne. And this is the first blush of the effect of climate change policies on prices. So Germany, Britain, China have all ordered their coal mines to close and stopped building as many coal-fired power stations in the attempt to try and make the transition away from fossil fuels to renewable energy. And that's fine. And, of course, they're building new wind farms and gas-fired turbines and putting up solar panels all over the place. But in that transition from fossil fuel to renewable, there's going to be a few hiccups. And what we've seen in the last year or so, in part because of COVID, but also because there's been problems with the wind in the North Sea and some problems with gas supplies into Europe, when they all happened at the same time, bang, there was a sudden need for gas to fire up those turbines, the ones that used to be fired up with coal. And in China, for example, they literally hit the wall and have had to have rolling blackouts. Um, They have an electricity system where they don't charge the proper price for electricity. All of this has meant we've got an explosion of energy prices at the same time as all sorts of problems with COVID. That has meant that central banks have had to think about what they do. Do they react to this by putting up interest rates and slowing down economies simply because of a change in climate policies? Or do they look through it and go, okay, I need to keep interest rates low so that we can invest in all of these wind farms and gas turbines and solar panels? And at the same time, there's also a risk that if the central banks close down, slow down the economy in reaction to this energy price explosion, that you would see a slowdown in investment in this new uh, in this new renewable energy just at a time we needed to increase. And then we started to talk about uh, what's going on with banks and insurers in New Zealand and whether or not they should worry a lot about climate change and whether we have a concentration of risks, particularly around property. Remember, I have the saying, we don't have an economy, we've got a housing market with bits tacked on. Our big four banks now lending 60 to 70% of all of their lending is against housing. And remember, those big four Australian banks are also our big four banks. They're having to extricate themselves from coal mines and gas plants, but also deal with the potential risks of Australia, the continent. Not quite catching fire, but certainly having all sorts of grief with climate change. So the Reserve Bank is looking at that because it's also the regulator for insurers. And what I found fascinating about this week's episode is digging into some of the minutiae of how this could all play out in future. I talked to Belinda Story, who is an economist and an expert on understanding the effects of climate change on insurance. What she talks about, and what I think for me is the the big learning out of this week's episode, is that climate change and adaptation for climate change risks widening and deepening the divisions in our society between the haves and the have-nots, particularly around this old issue of moral hazard, where people who own assets believe they are entitled to keep the value of that asset even in a crisis where some sort of shock comes out of nowhere and the value of an asset slumps and the financial system is in danger, those people go to the government in charge at the time or whoever's running the central bank and say, bail me out because this thing is too big to fail, I own it, and I want all taxpayers to make sure that I don't lose out of this. Well, we face exactly that as our sea levels rise and our storms intensify. A whole bunch of people owning coastal property and fancy houses close to rivers will be in a position after the big storm where they say, this is a shock. I want someone else to pay for my new seawall. Essentially, the owners of these expensive assets will say to the rest of New Zealand, many of whom will be renters and taxpayers, that the rest of New Zealand should pay 
These are massive issues which our parliament will have to deal with in the next few years and our politicians all at the same time when these global forces of capital, of capital regulators, of global insurers and reinsurers and banks have to think about these issues. For me, this was a fascinating deep dive into the world, not just finance, but human interaction, the structure of our society, how we form social contracts that deal with shocks and who are the winners and losers and who can use the system to ensure that they don't pay the price, somebody else pays the price, a system where we extend this process of socialising the losses and privatising the profits. That's this week on When the Facts Change. I'm Bernard Hickey in a podcast on the Spinoff Podcast Network brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank. Well, the Reserve Bank has decided to do a big strategy document on what it's going to do about climate change. And they had a big press conference, Zoom, of course, where I got to ask the Reserve Bank Governor, Adrian Orr, about this big inflation shock we've seen in energy prices and what he was going to do about it. Because in theory, this is actually a result of climate change policies making the cost of fossil fuels more expensive. And the Reserve Bank could actually end up reacting to these policy changes in a way that's counterproductive. So I asked Adrian Orr, what's the Reserve Bank going to do about this energy price shock? On monetary policy, uh, I think there is going to be decades of relative price transitions and it's going to be in part because of regulatory behaviour, but mostly because of climate change itself. You know, with uh, with farming becoming increasingly difficult in traditional areas, uh, some traditional crops uh, being able to be grown in places where they're established now, uh, carbon pricing, uh, reaching those multiples that we talked about if we don't uh, undertake certain activity. These are relative price shocks that can persist for a long time. Uh, Already we note impatience even just over the last 12 months of the current price shocks in part because of COVID supply chain reactions. We've all talked about them. We all knew they were coming. We all said they may be temporary. Now, um, you know, the general discussion is, wow, these are persistent. And, you know, the school continues to be out around some central banks wanting to react, others not. So imagine that continuing now for the next 20 plus years. That is the world that we will be living in. It will mean that we have to, when we review our price, our our monetary policy mandate, um, we'll have to be really explicit on how we can manage some of these transitions. What does it also mean for um, for the pr- productive capacity of the economy and maximum sustainable employment? Uh, we will have to look through some very obvious price shocks, but to the extent that they are persistent and truly changing the basket, the price of the basket of goods and services we consume, then there will be monetary policy reactions. So there's not going to be any one uh, resolution, and part around the mandate, and part around the ability to identify one-off temporary versus more sustainable versus generalised inflation. And it's that latter part that we are most concerned with, and some of the price pressures we will see will lead to quite sustained higher generalised prices. We're already seeing that in food prices globally and energy prices, transport at present. And then Matthew Brockett from Bloomberg asked a really gnarly question about whether the Reserve Bank, which holds bonds in Australia and elsewhere, could actually pull out because the Australians are such climate laggards. For a central bank, we, we have a balance sheet for a very specific purpose. You know, one is the implementation of monetary policy, the liquidity management of the banking sector, and also to be standing here as, you know, a sense of lender of last resort when most needed or intervening in the in the um, foreign exchange market. So very specific reasons, which mean our balance sheet has to carry a certain amount of credit Um, stability and the ability to liquidate it very quickly. Hence, we're always invested in very high credit uh, international government bonds. Our carbon footprint of our balance sheet is above just a simple benchmark of a G7 uh, weighted um, bond holding. 
when you look at our bond holdings in our balance sheet, our carbon footprint is higher. And that is in part because, as uh, you mentioned, Matthew, we have more Australian and more Canadian bonds than, say, that G7 holding. So, yes, we will have to think hard around, can we achieve the same effectiveness with a lower footprint? Um, and by effectiveness, can we get the same level of liquidity, same level of credit insurance um, as we can? Now, another reason why we hold the, um, the weight slightly different to the G7 is because we also get increased revenue, increased yield um, relative to, say, the Japanese bonds or the US bonds are holding Canadian and Australian. So, you know, the choices that we have to be thinking about is the revenue, the near-term revenue we might have to give up to get the carbon footprint we can for the same level of effectiveness of the balance sheet. So that is exactly the choice that is facing so many investors globally now. I do note that some central banks, I think it was the Riksbank in Sweden, they themselves chose to rule out some uh, bond issuances uh, for Australian territories um, uh, recently, exactly for these reasons. So this is the way, you know, this, these are the issues in that simple world we're being confronted with. On a more exciting level, you know, we would like to be proactive, uh, one reason that we hold bonds is that we take um, uh, absorb bonds and provide cash back to for liquidity reasons in the banking sector and you know there's nothing stopping us from receiving green bonds and there's nothing stopping institutions from issuing more green bonds that we could receive so it's about how can we get the, the proposition the value proposition going where that becomes a far richer uh, market for us to be able to do our business and have the have the win-win situation. And then Gareth Vaughan, who's an old colleague from interest.co.nz, followed up on the question about inflation and asked the Reserve Bank Governor whether the Reserve Bank would actually need some new tools to deal with these climate change energy price shocks. Around the tool set for monetary policy, uh, no, we don't. Uh, monetary policy remains what it is, uh, always and everywhere money. Um, so we will be, you know, focusing on that. The real challenge is what does it mean not for relative price changes, which are a really important part of the solution, not the problem. If high carbon-intensive um, energies become relatively more expensive and low-emission ones become relatively cheaper, that is a solution. And those relative price shifts are what we want to see. It's if and when they are being... A, one relative price gets aggregated into generalised price inflation. That's when we have the issues and that's when monetary policy, the demand side of the economy, um, that we would need to be taking action. So relative versus aggregate prices is the key for us around uh, monetary policy. And then Gareth followed up by asking about what the Reserve Bank would tell to banks to force them or encourage them not to put their money into fossil fuel heavy businesses. Transparency, you know, it's um, sunlight is part of the cause and some of the solution um, to this climate change um, challenge we have. And the transparency around disclosure as to where your risks are, where are they concentrated, how are you managing them, what are you going to do about it, is very, very powerful because that will determine whether investors or consumers want to hang with you. And if you don't have a good story, but you have a strong concentration, then you have to accept what might happen to your business proposition. That is the number one, I would say, most powerful means by which we can influence. You know, transparency is a, is a double-edged thing. Not only does it uh, better incentivise uh, appropriate risk management, it also enables consumers and regulators to see whether the institutions are behaving, um, you know, responsibly. Um, that's not just about managing their climate exposure, but also around their pricing regimes. And this is going to be a challenge for insurance and banking. Show us how you've priced these risks, um, because otherwise it provides too much of an umbrella to explain all future cost changes. So, so be transparent. Show us how you're managing those risks. Of course, by now, this was really appealing to the finance geek in me. So I asked the Reserve Bank Governor, whether the Reserve Bank could actually force the banks to increase their interest rates for particular types of housing lending. For example, a really big sprawly McMansion up in Drury is probably going to be in trouble in 50, 60 years' time because of the transport costs and the carbon involved. Much 
riskier in a climate change sense than, say, for example, a medium-density apartment close to the centre of town. Could the Reserve Bank change its capital rules, which change the interest rates, the relative interest rates that banks would charge on certain types of loans, to encourage people to not build on coastal areas or in floodplains or way out in Drury? Here's what he said. So our strong starting desire is that these risk weights are based on international standards. The more we go off-piste ourselves, the more expensive it is to doing business in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And it's not just cost, the more risk there is that uh, single decision makers don't get it right um, in their own countries. So we are, I know that at the Bank of International Settlements, the BIS, the decision-making committees, they are thinking very hard around whether they do need to or not uh, impose specific risk weightings for climate change uh, type risks. Uh, I think over the next 12 to 18 months we will hear what they have opined on. Is that correct? Uh, We're not holding out huge hope that that will be a significant change. We're holding out far more hope that the transparency and the disclosure will create the change that's needed. People will be more reluctant to lend to, to types of activities that may be unsustainable through the various risks that are posed in that activity. And to do that, that's transparency and making sure that the financial institutions are doing it consciously. They are awake. They have identified, priced and allocated the risks um, accordingly to those who can manage them. So simple blind lending will lead to costs. And the transitions, by the way, you know, it will be significant. So you, there will be great opportunities for finance, uh, for the finance industry to uh, reap great re- rewards for assisting in the transition rather than just accept losses by being asleep at the wheel. So that's Adrian Orr there, the Reserve Bank Governor, talking about how he's hoping the Bank for International Settlements in Basel actually come up with the right capital risk weightings to get the job done. Next up, we speak to Belinda Story, who loves a good geek out on climate change, insurance risks and all that sort of thing, but dives into some fascinating areas around moral hazard. That's next with Belinda Story. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with Kiwi Bank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's Kiwi Bank economist Sabrina Delgado on what's happening with the labour market in Aotearoa. Our slowing economy gives way to higher unemployment, and we're seeing tightness in the labour market quickly abating. Both a recovery on the supply side, with our surging migration, boosting labour supply, and loosening some very tight labour market conditions. But now a stronger narrative is coming through. As consumer demand cools, so too is the demand for labour. Firms are no longer hiring with the same gusto. Already, unemployment has started to lift from record lows, and we expect that to continue throughout 2024. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Sabrina and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. Welcome to When the Facts Change to Belinda Story, who is an expert on climate change and insurance and adaptation and risk because, Belinda, tell us about the work that you did with Deep South on trying to understand what our risks were. 
So I led a project under the Deep South, the first tranche, looking at insurance retreat along our coastline. And that was specifically wanting to understand when insurance was going to become unavailable under climate change. And the first um, measure that we looked at was uh, how sea level rise was going to impact the availability of insurance. And what did you find in terms of, you know, which parts of New Zealand are most vulnerable and whether or not it's starting to affect people's premiums or whether they can actually get insurance? The thing that really surprised us was that the availability of insurance was impacted with such a small amount of sea level rise. So just with 10 centimetres of sea level rise, a house that is currently within a one in a hundred year flood zone or has a probability of an event happening every uh, 1% every year, that that increased by five times with just 10 centimetres of sea level rise, for example, in Wellington. So we undertook a piece of analysis um, on the major cities, coastal cities that we have. So we looked at Wellington, Christchurch, Dunedin and Auckland. And what we found is that at an absolute minimum, there were 10,000 houses that we could expect to start to lose insurance in the next 10 years and should expect to not be able to get any sort of insurance within the next 20 to 30. That 10,000 was a really conservative number. We expect that number to be significantly higher, but we were constrained by the quality of the data we were able to get about flood and inundation zones. Um, and the other thing that we, we know is that for every one house at the coast that's in a flood zone, there's 10 houses inland that are in flood zones. So what that signaled is that that 10,000 houses that are going to lose insurance is a very conservative number. So if it's 10,000 right at the shore and it's 10 to 1 back along the rivers and in the floodplains, you're talking potentially 100,000 houses, is that right? We haven't done that work yet because we need a different set of data to be able to put that in. We need to understand how precipitation is changing. But that's something that um, we are currently looking at now is how we can get an understanding of just how many houses and floodplains, for example, are also likely to lose insurance. And we know from the IPCC and the ongoing climate conference in Glasgow that at mm-hmm. the moment we're looking at heating in the world, you know, 2.7 degrees by the end of this century. What would that do for uh, sea levels and the sorts of risks for houses and banks and insurers? Well, one of the things that if we look at that um, 2.7, so that's the summary of all the commitments that every nation has made. So we're on path to that 2.7. What that also means is that we're going to, under that path, we'll hit 1.5 in the 2030s. So we're going to hit 1.5 fairly soon. And on that same path, we'll hit two degrees in, say, 2055. So When I think about putting that into context, one of the key facts I like to talk about is that if you think about the difference between now and the height of the last ice age, that was about six degrees. So there's about six degrees difference between now and the height of the last ice age in terms of the global temperature. And during the last ice age, you could walk from the South Island to the North Island because sea levels were 125 metres lower. The other thing that some of the work that my colleagues do is look at about how much that one degree that we've already had has had an impact. So colleagues of mine are doing work on Westport event at the moment and on the Canterbury event to get an understanding of how much more likely that event has become because we've had that one degree. But what we know in the German floods that happened this year is that you had an event that would have otherwise happened, say, one in 2,000 years has now become a one in 300 year event. So what that means is you've had an event with just one degree of heating means that the extreme event is now seven, six to seven times more likely. So if one degree makes something six or seven times more likely, then you you know add that onto the two degrees. Now, some of the modeling that my colleagues do is trying to get an understanding, but what it does indicate is that two degrees is a really big deal and we're currently on path to to hit that in about 2055. Yikes. And when you talk about this with people in insurance and banks in New Zealand who have, you know, lots of exposure to coastal property, um, floodplain property, and uh, potential uh, flood risk property, uh, what do they, what's the look on their faces? Are they going, yeah, I knew that. That's fine. We can deal with that. We've got that under control. Or, Or is it something different? 
think the, I mean, the insurers have are the most advanced in terms of any industry in thinking about climate change. They've been thinking about climate change. Um, certainly, the most sophisticated insurers have been thinking about that for you know a few decades. But the other thing that you need to balance with that is insurers have been thinking about it for a long time, but they only need to look a small distance into the future. They only need to look maybe a year into the future or maybe three years because that's what their reinsurance contracts are. So that's the contracts they have with the entities that insurers insurers. Um, so because they only have to look a short distance into the future, they're not too worried because they can always pull out, which is what you know, my research was looking at is wanting to see at what point does insurance retreat happen? So in, insurers have an idea about it, but they only need to think 12, maybe 12 months, maybe three years out. So in that sense, I don't think they're terribly concerned. Banks have been a little bit later to come to thinking about climate change, but they're, they're definitely uh, putting a lot of focus on them at this time. You'll see that banks are hiring a bunch of people to start undertaking this sort of analysis for them. Um, but they're needing to think about um, those longer terms because obviously when someone buys a house, they may have a mortgage and that mortgage may have 15 years or 20 years or 30-year term on it. And so the bank needs to have a better understanding about how that is going to change, but they're only starting on that. Councils have been thinking about this and worrying about this. Um, and so this is something that, that councils have definitely been um, thinking about. But I think overall, the insurers are, are fairly confident. Um, councils are worried and banks are only just starting to get their head around it. So um, if you look at what's happened overseas in some areas where there's been massive wildfires, for example, in California and huge floods in the south of America, where in some cases, I understand, insurers have simply pulled out of an entire region and said, no, we can't insure you at all for fire risk, um, which is in many places meant that the house, you know, buying an uninsurable house is quite hard, particularly for a bank. A bank's very unlikely to lend to someone on a property, uh, particularly the, the, the building itself, which isn't insured. So it sounds like something that uh, um, after a big event or maybe after a review by some uh, risk manager, suddenly when you try to renew your policy or when you come time to sell your house, it's almost like a, um, a trigger point where you go, ah, oh, gee, this house is unmarketable, unsaleable, and therefore suddenly worthless. Is that right? There's definitely, um, there's a couple of things I'd like to pick up on there. One of them is that can insurers decide to withdraw, not because there's an event locally, but because there's an event somewhere else. And so we're definitely seeing that. And that was something that the Reserve Bank talked about that they were concerned that when they were looking at their insurance stress testing this year, they were actually more concerned about the potential availability of reinsurance for local insurers than they were about major storms happening in New Zealand. And that's just because the nature of storms in New Zealand are unlikely to hit an entire portfolio for a local insurer. So that was that's one point that if you you can definitely see situations where you can get withdrawals from entire markets by an insurer overseas that then has knock-on effects elsewhere. The most famous case, well, the earliest famous case, I guess, was following Hurricane Andrew in 1992, there was a mass withdrawal of insurance from Florida. So, so the local insurers said that they were going to pull out. And Florida's gone through a series of market changes in order to respond to that withdrawal. Um, what we've seen in terms of the wildfire, I think that's still playing out. Interestingly enough, overseas, most insurance isn't like New Zealand insurance, where in New Zealand, if you buy insurance, chances are it's going to cover you for just about every hazard. Whereas in the States, there's a lot more of adverse selection in the sense that people tend to only buy insurance if they're in a flood zone or they only buy insurance if they're in near a wildfire. So the loss of insurance there potentially has less impact because banks are used to lending to houses which only have some insurance on some things. Now, that may mean that the banks are requiring more collateral or they're expecting to have an alternative form of subsidy perhaps from the state if they know that that asset might get damaged because it doesn't have insurance. So in New Zealand, we have really high coverage of, of insurance and it's across all of our heralds, 
where overseas people might be in a location and not have flood insurance and they can still get a mortgage because there's other structures in place in that market. So potentially New Zealand is in a slightly more vulnerable position because our insurance is quite vanilla. Either you've got it or you haven't. You can't really slice and dice out different types of risks. And because New Zealand house values are so high and so dependent on being able to borrow against that house, that would mean there's a risk that the value of your house could drop quite sharply if you can't get insurance. And the best uh, way to describe it, I think, is that a lot of apartments, uh, because of bank lending policies, you, ca- you can't actually borrow against them. Let's say if they're smaller than 40 square metres or they're uh, leaky or um, something like that. It's actually, you can see the value of the property is much, much lower because you can't borrow against it. And I would have thought a property that suddenly can't be insured suddenly actually drops a lot in value, maybe even more so than it would overseas. Yes, I think that's definitely the case. And the other one that I guess differentiates us from some, perhaps from the US, for example, is that in the US they have they they have a practice of having thirty year fixed term mortgages, whereas we have you might have a mortgage term that maybe is twenty years, but you've only got a much shorter period of fixed term. You can you know the maximum fixed term you can get in New Zealand is five years. So yes, I think there is that potential at the moment. Um, we're possibly that signal is being dampened because banks don't currently know whether you've still got insurance or not. So at the point where you're selling your house and you've lost insurance, then yes, definitely, if potential buyers can't get insurance, then they're going to find it. They, they will find it almost impossible to get a mortgage on that property. But at the moment, we're not seeing that coming through. And part of that may be that um, people who are in that situation where they have lost insurance may not be selling and their bank doesn't know that they've lost insurance. So there may be some delay in that implication for New Zealand. Um, But yes, there is. That that the banks don't know when the house that they're uh, lent money against suddenly loses their insurance? What, they don't share their databases or or, or get a note? So, you know? unless things have changed in the last few months, that is that is the case. So, the um, that is something, um, there's two things. Insur- so, insurers, you need to know that when you first get a mortgage, but insurers don't provide information to the banks um, during the term of the mortgage if someone's lost their um, their insurance. And the insurers don't provide that information to the regulator. So even the Reserve Bank doesn't know which houses in New Zealand have lost insurance. There are other jurisdictions internationally that require insurers to provide that information to the regulator, but we don't do that in New Zealand. So we 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 are blind. Both policymakers and banks are blind to understanding where insurance retreat is happening. And that's partly why I did the research is to be able to give an indication of the extent of that issue and where that retreat is either um, likely to have already occurred or can be expected to occur. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see when they finally start talking to each other and sharing that information, um, what surprises pop up in their books. But also, um, from a, a home buyer point of view or a home seller point of view, we've we've seen a sort of a sneak preview of, of how this plays out in the Kapiti Coast a few years ago when uh, the council wanted to put notes against the LIMS, the uh, Land Information Memoranda, which stated this um, property is vulnerable to um, sea level rises or coastal erosion. And there was this massive revolt from the uh, the homeowners saying, don't you dare put that note on my limb or I won't be able to sell my house for the amount of money that I bought it for. Um, Can you see these sorts of fights um, breaking out all over the place as councils and homeowners and real estate agents and banks and insurers suddenly realise that when this information becomes public, not just to the individual parties involved, the owners and the banks and the insurers, but potentially to a potential um, you know, buyer of a home, then you know, we're, we're in a situation where it could be quite difficult. So that, in a way, that fight's already happened um, in the sense that that Kapiti Coast case had a chilling effect on councils all around the country. And councils, particularly smaller councils that didn't have deep pockets to fight those legal cases, became very reluctant to provide information on risk 
on limbs and the like. So there was this chilling effect about risk communication across the country because of that Kapiti Coast event. And I think that was a to the detriment of markets. Markets should work well with information. So any sort of information on risk should be made available. By all means, you know, test the quality of the science, but once the science reaches a certain standard, then there should be an, a full and free communication of that risk. The other key thing about the Kapiti Coast is that my colleague, Ilan Noy, who's Chair of Disaster Economics at, at Victoria, he did a piece of analysis on those Kapiti cases, those houses, to see how much property prices moved, and they didn't. So he looked at property prices before the hazard lines went on, after the hazard lines went um, on, and then after the hazard lines came off, and there was no material change in house prices. And yet people argued at the time that the information shouldn't be provided because their, help, their property prices would collapse. They didn't. And so I think that if we want our markets to work well, then the, the information should be made available. And I think the argument that if you produce this, then it's going to destroy my property value is not a valid argument. That's fascinating that um, once people knew a lot more about it and uh, then prices didn't fall. And I'm guessing in Florida, you know, once some of the insurers pulled out, the market kept going and people still paid money for, for housing. So tell and us so about Florida, that. Yeah, Florida wasn't a great example because what happened was the local government became very concerned about that. And so what they did was um, they said, um, well, we'll self-insure. So they then provided a public subsidy on those um, on hurricane risk. And then they reached a point where effectively the federal government said, you're not really self-insuring. You're expecting the federal government to step in. So sort yourself out. So then Florida became an innovator in what's called cat bonds. And so they started packaging up that risk that um, kind of like um, a massive premium and packaging it up into a, a, into a bond, then slicing it up and then selling it on to uh, investors. And as an example, the, the sorts of investors that buy cat bonds are pension funds like NZ Super. So, Florida is an example of what not to do if, and, and in particular, how the motivation to um, on-sell a mispriced risk can result in um, people remaining in the most hazardous locations, but getting somebody else to pay for that risk. This moral hazard thing is just fascinating to me because uh, what we've seen so far, and I'm thinking in particular of Island Bay, where there was a bad storm that wrecked the seawall and it wasn't, wasn't fixed for years and years because the council rightly thought, well, do we need to retreat back and give ourselves more space? And the locals yelled and shouted and said, no, um, you must pay to put an even bigger, heavier seawall there um, because that affects our lifestyle in this place and we paid for a house that was close to the beach and we're not going to move so we want all other ratepayers to effectively subsidize us even though we knew the climate change was going to happen we still do not want to pay ourselves or be affected ourselves we want everyone else to pay do you think that's going to be the sort of battle we face as um, people say why should I pay for your seawall or for some sort of dredging or whatever it is to stop the next flood when you knew when you bought that house or you should have known that this was going to happen and you should therefore bear the cost? I mean, I, th this is definitely happening. I know that there's a, a proposal at the moment being considered in Thames where they're looking at a um, six-metre seawall that would potentially cost $200 million. And so that is something that they're currently putting out for community consultation. Is Thames really going to have $200 million to be able to pay for that? Or are they going to be looking to the New Zealand public to be supporting that? And what happens is that they end up doing a, um, a scoping exercise on the engineering solution, but they're not considering all of the other alternatives that could be considered. So one of the things I do is um, I've developed a model which looks at how you, an alternative, which called climate leases, which allows you to remain in place, but sets a time limit. So instead of spending that $200 million, for example, on a seawall, maybe you spend $200 million 
negotiating the permanent rights and extracting those from the properties, compensating homeowners for the proportion of the um, time that they're going to be that, that will be lost to the sea, and then having long-term planning about where we need to move elsewhere. That's a fascinating idea. Is is there anywhere in the world where that's been used as a mechanism? Because you're right, it it would save a lot of you know concrete and steel being <laughs> constructed and all the climate carbon emissions that go with that, but also you know provide a way forward for those people who are worried that they're going to have to bear the cost completely. So I know California are thinking about buying houses and then leasing them back. The key difference there is that by doing that, you're effectively hiding the compensation. So you buy the house at today's value and the person who's been had that house today gets the full market value of that today and then continues to be able to live in that property at the same at a at a rent that would be equivalent to the current price. But what the model that they have in California the state is going to have to write off those assets. So there's a similar model, but it's hiding the mispricing of the risk today. This is a really interesting uh, problem, particularly for those people who don't own property. They might be renters who are paying taxes or they're, um, they're rate, rate payers indirectly through their rents, but don't get the benefit of the capital gain of, of the sort of explosive house prices we've had and, and also don't get the protection if the taxpayer at large has to you know, fund the seawall or the climate lease to you know, deal with this, this sort of um, insurance retreat and banking retreat problem. Um, how, how do you think this, this could affect you know, the way uh, renters, younger people who haven't been able to get into the market but are still paying taxes, how do you think they'd feel about all this? There is significant moral hazard in the current situation because there's two things. One thing we know is that if you ask a community that's at a coast and they're facing the sea coming in, insurance retreat or banking retreat, they will almost always ask for a seawall that is paid by someone else. That is almost always what they'll ask for. If we do nothing, then there's a strong incentive for people to continue to build at that location because there's a reasonable expectation that if a disaster does strike, society will step in. It's something that's called charity hazard, which is a subset of moral hazard. What they know is that when there's a disaster, society finds it extremely difficult not to step in and help. So there is really strong moral hazard at the moment. You either get a seawall that's paid for by someone else or it has um, environmental detrimental effects that impact somebody else, or you keep building bigger and bigger houses in these locations on the basis that if disaster strikes, society will step in. So these, these sound like really hard conversations for people to have. And when you're a politician, those are the conversations you don't want to have. <laughs> you, Absolutely. You want to them off, get someone else to have them. How is, how is New Zealand going to, you know, negotiate this? Do we actually have to sit down and, you know, come up with an agreement about who's going to pay for retreat and, and deal with all this stuff? I mean, how, how do you see it playing out in the sort of political economy? The questions of what we do about managed retreat and how we share those costs across society, how we make sure that we don't lock people into the most hazardous locations um, so that we don't have the tragedies, the risks to life, that is something that will be considered um, as part of the reform of the RMA. So when they think about the third piece of legislation, it's got various possible names. One of them is a Climate Change Adaptation Act or Managed Retreat Act or or various other names. But those are things that um, the government will be thinking about and trying to grapple with. What is important is that we have that debate and that we don't jump to a particular solution. And I perhaps want to just touch on the insurance retreat. When I first started talking to government agencies and the like about insurance retreat, um, so many people said to me that they thought EQC was the answer, that a public insurer should step in, that we actually ended up calling EQC and said, by the way, guys, you need to know that they think you're going to be carrying the bag here. <laughs> and there's a really telling example about a public flood insurance program in the US. So the National Flood Insurance um, Program was started in the US after Hurricane Betsy in 1965. And one of the areas that Hurricane Betsy decimated was New Orleans and the Ninth Ward. And so what they did is they subsidized the insurance for flood on the basis it was supposed to be grandparented. But instead of 
been limited to those locations that already had houses. Instead, what it did is it subsidised a massive wave of development at the coasts in the 70s and the 80s. So that what you had is exactly 40 years later, Hurricane Katrina hit the Ninth Ward in New Orleans and caused mass casualties. So while it may feel like it's a good solution, providing subsidised public insurance when private insurers pull out, it can have tragic consequences. So let's make you the Prime Minister and, <laughs> you know, for, for the next 50 years or something. What would you do to try to do this in a sensible way which didn't crystallise this moral hazard and essentially advantage one small group of people at the expense of the rest and avoided these sorts of perverse outcomes from subsidisation? What would be the way to, to do it? Um, there's two very tactical things I'd do tomorrow. One of them is that I would protect local governments from litigation from developers for disclosing risk that is um, scientifically peer-reviewed. So I would do that tomorrow. And the other one is I would require insurers and banks to notify the regulator when they're withdrawing because of climate change. So those are two things that could be done tomorrow. The other one is the bigger question about managed um, retreat in particular. And so um, there's a number of policy innovations that can, can occur in that place. Climate leases is one of those, but I don't presume to be able to answer that whole problem. And just just finally, um, is this a problem which the market and uh, financial regulators, particularly international financial regulators and international capital, can solve when at a time when local politicians find this just too hard to deal with? For example, at the moment, there is a movement globally for uh, activist pension funds to get onto the boards of big uh, oil companies mm -hmm. to, you know, uh, force banks and others to stop financing fossil fuel extraction and lots of other um, ways in which the global capital markets and regulators are effectively doing a lot more than what some governments will do. Do you think this is a problem that could sort of solve itself after the banking regulators get together with the insurance regulators and actually just solve this problem uh, that politicians just can't deal with? I think requiring much stronger information is a real, is a positive thing. So I'm also a member of the external advisory panel for the XRB on the climate-related disclosures legislation, which just passed, I think, last week. I think that's a really positive thing. So requiring companies to disclose their risk means that they have to start thinking about exactly what that is. So in some cases, companies haven't thought about it. So I think information is critical and that is something that um, any politician should be able to do. Fantastic. Belinda, that's a wonderful uh, deep dive into the world of um, climate finance and uh, opened up a whole bunch of really interesting areas I wasn't expecting. Belinda Story there, who is um, the co-founder of Canute, uh, K-A-N-U-T-E. Just, just finally, could you tell us where you got the name from, what it's about? Uh, so King Canute has somewhat of an urban legend in that he tried to hold back the tide. But actually what he was wanting to do was demonstrate that even though he was the most powerful king in Northern Europe, um, even he couldn't hold back the tide. And so uh, Canute is about um, pricing physical climate risk and in particular having humility in the face of nature because climate change is going to have a significant impact on us. Belinda, thank you very much. I'm much more humble now than I was at the start of the interview. Thanks, Bennett. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, te aihe Butler here, Podcast Manager at the Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a spin-off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.